position. Too many men on the field. Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block and the sideline. He has not stepped out. He may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores. Everybody, welcome to the Outsiders, brought to you by the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. It is Podcast Fifty Three on Monday, April the fifth. Hello, uh, Robin. How you doing today? Oh, I'm outstanding, man. We got a shitload of stuff to talk about. I'm looking forward to today. Our guest on the program is Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada. Of course, uh, he played. I don't know how many years did he play in the NHL. Oh God, I'd have to look up his record. Well, you know what? He, we can ask him that, of course. We can ask 16, him. 17, I want to say. Exactly. He scared me. When he wore that bandana in the Los Angeles days, I'd go down after the uh, games, and he just had that look. It was a scary, scary look. I didn't even want to ask a tough question or any ask any question for that matter. That bandana scared me. I'm going to mention that well, to him. Well, I tell you, he had, to this day, I would put him in the upper tier with the likes of Yaramir Yager, Still one of the sickest flows in the National Hockey League. <laughs> uh, I've got to, I've got to, I, I ran a picture this morning uh, on Twitter saying he was coming on and he's got the big bandana yeah. as usual. I tell you what, the man had serious flow. I mean, that was a good looking mop of hair. But was it as good as his coach in Los Angeles, Barry Melrose, who also had <laughs> a hell of a do? I'll have to ask him about that. <laughs> All right, there's lots of stuff we got to talk about right off the top before we uh, get going here. And uh, this COVID thing with the Vancouver Canucks is is scary on so many fronts. Where do you want to start with this? Well, you know what? It, it was alarming to hear the reports, uh, you know, coming out of Vancouver, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, Darren Drieger at TSN, uh, you know, Frank Saravalli, Pierre Lebrun, um, my old pal from, from, uh, Kamloops, Ben Kuzma is the point man on the beat out there for the Canucks. And they were all writing about it this weekend. I tell you what, it's scary from the sheer numbers alone. Um, you know, it's, if it's not the whole team, it's, it's virtually the whole team. And now there's talk that it's, uh, spread to some families, you know, this latest variant of, of COVID is obviously a different animal than what we've seen before. I mean, look at the job the National Hockey League did uh, in Toronto and Edmonton during the play-ins and playoffs where they kept everybody clean. Uh, right now, um, we're far from clean and you look at the Canucks, you wonder what happens with their personnel, and you also have to wonder what happens uh, with the season and the schedule. Do they take a break? Do they, I mean, what do you do at this point when you're, you're talking virtually a whole team? Okay, let, let's set this up properly here, and, and let's start with the thing we have to say first, and that is the most important thing of all of this is the health of the player, the health of their families, the health of the organization. Yep. All essential. Absolutely. I don't even think we have to say it, but if we don't, someone's going to say, oh, you're overlooking the, the fact that the families are important. Uh, yeah, we get that. We absolutely understand that. But this is kind of a sports podcast, so we're looking at it from a sports perspective. I think yeah. people will kind of figure that out. As for what's going on with the Canucks, here's the, here's the thing. I'm hearing all sorts of different numbers, and I've read Ben's numbers, and I've read Darren Drager's numbers out of Toronto. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I, I don't mm -hmm. think that because you're right there by the team that you're necessarily going to have the exact information as you would if you were distant on the other side of the country in Toronto. I think that people have got their different sources. So I want to get into who's yeah. right and who's wrong. All I know is this. It sounds like it's over 14 players. There's one or two coaches involved. And this story that could change constantly throughout the, the rest of the week but the yeah. bottom line is they ain't playing this week. And it is, uh, it's really going to bugger things up down the stretch to the point where Terry Jones, our friend, 
from uh, newspaper fame and fortune here in, in Edmonton was talking about you can't just watch the schedule and look at points anymore. you got to look at the schedule because who's playing Vancouver? I, I, I don't know. I don't even know where to jump in on this one, Robin. There's just so many little things now that could really F up the rest of this schedule. Well, you know, there's a couple of options, and I don't have any easy answers to it, Bryn. Um, you got to look at it, and there's going to be information out there that you and I aren't privy to, and 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 none of the reporters are too. Is it serious enough that you consider a pause, not a not a not a cancellation, but a pause? Um, do you? try and isolate the Canucks in terms of let's look at how their games are affected and the teams that they play. For one, the Edmonton Oilers play the Canucks five more times. So they would be affected by that. Connor McDavid talked about that yesterday. Is there a way to um, leave the Canucks out of the loop for, for now? I don't know because they have opponents who are expecting to play as well. The other thing is, you know, and it's been talked about, do you look at, you know, do you play the games that you can play? Do you stay safe as you can? You know, down in the U.S., the Northern Division, something of its own entity this year. Mm -hmm. And do you go, maybe teams can't play the same number of games. That's a, that's a realistic possibility. And you go with points percentage to determine the standings and hope that everybody is healthy and well enough to play by the time the playoffs come. So there's options out there. I don't know which road we go down, though. Well, the the story that we had heard was that they had built in a buffer or a little one-week period before the end of the season and the start of the playoffs. Well, that that that's uh, pretty much eaten up. I mean, yep. now, now we're looking at a, maybe a two-week break. The other thing, too, is that, you know, the fact that the Edmonton Oilers are scheduled to play the Vancouver Canucks. We'll use this one as an example. If they don't play those games, the Oilers could go a few weeks where they only play maybe a couple of games. They've already had two monstrous breaks here where they haven't played. They've also traveled across the country crazily. Back in Montreal again tonight. Yep. A team that they're struggling to beat. But I don't know. This is this is a real dilemma. And uh, I, uh, I don't know how they're going to handle it. But uh, I guess we're going to have to sit back and watch. That's all, That's we, all can. we can do. We need to know the, the full scope and trust that the National Hockey League uh, will do what is best for, you know, in the bigger picture, find a way around it. You know, it doesn't mean you can't complete a season. Maybe if you back up the timeline, um, you can and you take a a two week break, even to let the Canucks get sorted out, because, you know, it's, we've been talking about 14-day quarantines for the public at large. If you if you test positive, find out what's going on. You know, it's a pain in the ass for everybody. But if you take that break and let the Canucks get right, then you know you you push your season back if you're if you're bound and determined to play the full 56. That's okay too. You take it from there. If you if you want to stick closer to the timeline, then maybe you say. We're going to play the games we can play, and if nobody and, and if we don't have all teams having played fifty six, we'll go with uh, points percentage, and we'll have playoffs. So there's there's a couple ways to go. We won't know how it's going to go until we hear more from the National Hockey League. Biggest fans of the Edmonton Oilers uh, tonight will be the Calgary Flames because oh. they uh, they have to watch very carefully what Montreal is doing. Montreal's reachable. Calgary, if they turned it around and went on this run, could reach Montreal. However, the Habs with four four games in uh, in hand, I can't yeah. see Montreal losing too many more. And one thing's for sure, they've had the Oilers number, so an Oiler victory in Montreal is certainly far from a given. Well, I tell you what, um, I wrote a couple of days ago at Oilers Nation and got some shit for it from uh, Calgary fans because obviously an Edmonton writer saying the Flames are toast. I said they're done. Um, Montreal is not giving up that ground. It's almost impossible. 
Um, mathematically, no, it's not impossible. But when you look at this Flames team, Bryn, and you're probably right there with me in terms of uh, being surprised. I didn't think Daryl Sutter would come in, magically snap his fingers and turn what had been a struggling team into a rocket that was on its way north into the standings. But man, they have not been close to good enough under him. I'm surprised because usually you get more of a bounce than they got when Jeff Ward was fired. They won three straight under him, but man, they've been dog shit since then. So let me ask you this, because it was the topic of conversation around the house yesterday. And that is what exactly is wrong in Calgary? They went out and they got a great goaltender who has not been great. He's been okay. And they probably botched up the other netminder who thought he was number one and now he's number two, although he's played okay. But okay, goaltending isn't good enough generally. And then defensively, they're maybe, they're okay. And up front, they should be better than okay. And I guess if you're going to look to place the blame, you're going to be looking at Johnny Hockey, might look at Sean Monaghan, the, the biggest issue that the Flames now have is that they are running short of racetrack and they're going to yep. have to decide really fast here, are we buyers or sellers? That's always a tough one. And right now, I don't know if they are at that point where they know whether they're a buyer or seller. I think right now they're sellers. Yeah, you know what? Again, they needed to be a plus 500 points percentage team. They're five, six, and one. Um, uh, under Daryl, that's surprise. That's not good enough. That makes up no ground on anybody. Um, now do they pull it apart? Well, I imagine that's a conversation that Daryl's going to have with Brad Treleving because I don't know that you sell the whole farm, but you may have to drop some pieces because I tell you what, Daryl's got a three-year contract. This is to me, he's Brad Treleving's last hire. Uh, he doesn't, Brad Treleving has overseen this club long enough now oh, yeah. that tra- trades have been made, coaching changes have been made. What's the next one? Well, Daryl sat in Brad's chair before for the Calgary Flames. It's not new to him. He's not a coach who would take a swing at being a GM. He's been a GM. So, you know, uh, I don't know how much of the t- pieces you let go, but if that conversation is had, I think if in Daryl's heart of hearts, if he's honest, he's going to say to his GM, well, the way I want to play and the way I think we need to play, and this is a, a coach who's won two Stanley Cups in LA, player X, player Y, and player Z do not fit into my plans. I'm not saying they're not good hockey players, but they don't fit into the the way I see the game being played What can we get for them? I think they have that conversation. I still truly believe that the hire of Daryl Sutter was not done by Brad Treliving. It was done by ownership. Yeah. And I think Brad, I'm not even sure Brad survives the end of the season or even gets to the trade deadline. And if he is the guy pulling the triggers on a couple of deals, then I would have to think that Daryl is right, right, standing right there beside him, knowing that he's got ownership on his side. And maybe, who knows, Daryl might even be the GM. In, uh, in, sh- in a short span of time. I don't know. We'll see what happens. That's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess. And yep. uh, I know one thing, the team that we're watching is not a Daryl Sutter kind of team. That's for sure. Hey, uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking with Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada. Lots to talk about with Kelly. After that, I want to talk about how sports is back in the U.S. in a big way. We'll get to that. NCAA Final Four, we're down to our Final Two It was kind of exciting to see how Gonzaga got there. Talk about that briefly. And much, much more coming up here on The Outsiders, which is brought to you by the Macintosh Group. You know, we've asked you, when is the best time to buy a house? Well, the answer, truthfully, is 20 years ago. But the second best time is right now. I was chatting with Brent over the weekend, and the numbers are in. After the first three months of 2021, residential sales in Edmonton are up. Single-family home sales are up by 80%. Condominium sales are up by 43%. And if you're looking for a place out in the country, residential sales are up by a staggering 120%, which can't really be a big surprise with the COVID stuff out there. People want to have themselves a little bit of a space. But this obviously won't last forever. So if you're thinking about maybe selling your home this year, 
Well, then obviously now is the time to do it. Don't wait until June or July. The market will obviously slow down because there'll be more inventory out there. So if you're really interested in, in getting, to, uh, getting to sell your house or maybe looking to buy that particular house, get a hold of the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. You can call them directly at 780-464-0075. You can also find them online at macintoshgroup.ca. You ready? He's up next. I'm ready. Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada. left in overtime. If he scores, Detroit wins. If he doesn't, the OT continues. Fedorov and Kelly Rudy. Kelly Rudy made the save. We are not done. So that was 1995, Kelly? Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember the game well. Uh, I gave up four goals to Fedorov uh, in the game. He had a penalty shot in overtime. And if you watch the clip on uh, YouTube, uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, was the first guy to come and celebrate with me, and we ended up tying the game. Uh, we had won the night before in Toronto on a Saturday night, and we were in the midst of a real playoff run. Uh, great memory. Uh, I believe it was a day or so later that we traded for Grant Fuhrer, though. Um, we went on to Dallas, and I think we won that game also. But unfortunately, that year, we lost uh, out of the playoffs by one point. We had to, uh, our last game, our second last game was in Winnipeg. We won that. And we simply had to go to Chicago and get a tie or better, and we'd make the playoffs. Unfortunately, we lost, and uh, San Jose made the playoffs, and we didn't. But Robin and uh, Bryn, that was the start of my career on Hockey Night in Canada because we stayed over in Chicago after the game. And we flew home the next day. I believe we got home around noon. And my wife said, uh, a guy by the name of John Shannon just called you and he'd like you to call him back. And I knew John. I knew that he was the executive producer of Hockey Night at the time. And uh, he invited me to come to Toronto uh, during the playoffs, first round of the playoffs. They're having a brand new atrium show out of the CBC building on Front Street in Toronto. And I uh, wanted to know I'd come in, rotate with uh, Ron and Don. It'd be Ron and Don, of course, one night, and then Ron and myself. But I was the second choice, guys. Uh, Wayne Gretzky was the first choice. And luckily for me, he declined, and I've been at Hockey Night ever since. Man, this is going down the same direction that we went down with Ray Ferraro, where he, uh, as he said, stumbled into television. Mm-hmm. You didn't stumble into television, you were called, like, as yeah. he was. But yeah. do you remember... This is almost the exact same question we asked Ray. Yeah. Do you remember your first broadcast where you uh, you had to you couldn't rely on a glove hand, you just had to rely on your oh. wits. And how much different oh how more difficult it was than you thought it would be. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot to go into that. So first of all, we were gonna have a rehearsal about ten minutes before opening the show. And the number one thing I remembered was the Hockey Night in Canada theme music in my ear and how incredibly nervous that made me because as a kid growing up in Edmonton um, and we would watch Hockey Night in Canada religiously, right? And so now all of a sudden I'm sitting on the set beside Ron McLean, the music's in my ear and uh, I can't remember what Ron asked me the first question, but uh, then I heard in my, my ear from John Shannon saying, something like speak up, speak louder, because I was so nervous to be on the show in the first place and then have this opportunity and not wanting to blow it. And I I remember after calling my mom and dad and my brother back in Edmonton saying, I can't believe I was on Hockey Night in Canada, the show that we all grew up watching. And and then I told him the experience about the music in my ear. And it was just, uh, I believe that first show, guys, that we had four and a half million people, four and a half million viewers. And so when you hear numbers like that, it's one thing to play in a hockey arena when you have 20,000 people 
and and know that maybe you, you know the reach on TV might be two hundred fifty thousand or a million or what have you, but to actually be sitting in that chair and have four and a half million people watching is just it, it's so nervous, uh, so nerve wracking. I've never been more nervous in my life. In fact, well, well, I tell you what, it's a it's a it's a different situation. Stopping pucks is uh, is one thing, and you did that well for a long, long career. It's interesting though. You get behind that mic, and I've seen so many guys making the transition. They've got they're they're the proverbial deer in the headlights. It's yeah. like uh, totally different, uh, totally different game. I tell you what though, since that first trip to the microphone, and I tend to think you partially got it at least. Because let's face it, Kelly, you had Hall of Fame flow. You were on par <laughs> with Yaramir Yager when it came to the sweet do. I ran a picture of you today on Twitter, uh, lacing up the headband. Now that's extra style points right there. You not only had the flow, you had the hair. Hey, tell me about the start of the headband thing. I assume it was to keep the sweat out of your eyes, yeah. but it looked to me like it became as much of a fashion statement as anything afterwards. You're right, Robin. So go back to uh, my days. Boy, I bet in medicine hat even I was wearing, you know, one of those uh, terry cloth absorbent uh, headbands, right? Because back then, all my life, I think for the longest time, I had long hair, right? I was a kid that really liked long hair. And then, my last year of junior, I was having problems with long shots. So I was uh, given prescribed uh, contact lenses. And that, that was a game changer because when you have long hair and you have sweat and they get into your contacts, especially back then because the contacts weren't nearly as uh, good as they are now, it was really bothersome. It move your contacts around your eyes. And, and so I was always looking for something that was more absorbent than that old terry cloth uh, headband. And so one day when I was still playing for the Islanders, you guys remember those Stanfield uh, pajamas that we used to wear underneath our equipment. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I ripped, yeah, the blue T-shirt. I blew, I, I ripped up that blue T-shirt one day and folded it over and basically tied it around my head for practice. And I thought, I'll just give this a whirl. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? This is pretty good. This is more absorbent, at least it seemed to me, than the other thing I was wearing and so I went with it and over time it sort of became a trademark of mine and, and although I, I never intended it to become that it just was and uh, it turned out to be something that uh, people talked about I mean Don Cherry even made fun of me one day calling it the blue chiffon <laughs> and uh, so it was just something I got really sick of it later on in my career but uh, my family convinced me to keep wearing it and but uh, yeah it, I think when people think of me in my playing days, they think of that blue headband. Well, two quick things on that from me. One, I'm not sure if Barry Melrose's flow was a little bit better than yours, but it would have been right, would have been right there. The other thing too <laughs> is that remembering uh, covering the playoff series where it was Gretzky against the Oilers for the first time, you scared yep. me. You had this bandana thing going. You didn't seem like you wanted to ever talk to anybody. I just avoided you. I, or, or if I did put my microphone in front of you in those scrums, it was, I'll let the other guys ask. I don't, I don't want to get in any shit here. I'm just going to just, uh, you, uh, you had the pretty good glare going. Your concentration level was high. And it just didn't, how long would it take you to turn off after a game? Yeah, you're right, friend. So uh, I think that I would have been way more talkative post-game than at the morning skate. Morning skates, I was still, I was pretty intense. And uh, I, although I didn't, uh, you know, stay away from interviews, I would prefer not to do interviews before the day of a game. Uh, although I, it was, I had a weird thing going on. So, cause I wanted to get out of the arena as quickly as possible so I could go have my pregame meal. Basically that was the whole thing. But when I came to the rink, I had no problem doing interviews before the game. I, I just found that I was more relaxed. I had my nap in and I was ready to go. But post-game, I think both you guys would know that <coughs> I was very talkative. I had no problem uh, sharing my thoughts on what happened during the course of the game. But to answer your question about when I would uh, somehow be able to calm down after a game and fully relax would be 
Boy, it was two things. It was either I was so jacked because we had won and I probably couldn't sleep till three or four in the morning or I was so mad at myself because we lost that it was three or four in the morning. I I couldn't find a balance. The only two goalies I actually remember being able to talk to before game was Grant Fuhr and Mika Kippersoff. Mm-hmm. And it was really quite simple. Mm-hmm. With Fuhrs, it was, well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, right. And with, uh, right. with, with Kipper, it was, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Is it, uh, it was, it, I mean, <laughs> both guys were the exact same in terms of temperament. And you couldn't tell the difference yeah. between a pregame and a postgame. But some guys just got to gear up the way they do. And, uh, your your career, but, you know, having said that, having that, there was a state of mind I played in, right? Like I, I played with hatred in my heart, and so not all athletes can do that, and I wouldn't suggest you try and find that to, for most people. But I, to a certain degree, had to get into a state of mind, kind of like John McEnroe. I I had to play at a really high level in terms of intensity. And if I didn't, I just, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't play well. I, I had to go onto the ice hating the other people on the other team. Now, having said that five minutes after the game, that all but uh, disappeared, which was easy for me also. But I just, I was not an athlete that could play in a, you know, a state of mind that, oh, well, uh, like you talked about Grant or Mika, that's not something uh, I could do. Now, now Kelly, uh, a couple minutes back, you mentioned three or four in the morning speaking Mm -hmm. of three or four in the morning we are like 13 days short of the 34th anniversary of the easter epic april april 18th 1987 128 minutes and 47 (laughs) seconds 73 saves in a three to two win how how did you manage that? I'd I'd still be tired if I faced that many shots. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, you never go into a game thinking that it's going to be an epic overtime, right? So uh, every single uh, intermission, you you expect that the game's going to end in that overtime period. Uh, I did learn one thing, though, guys, in that overtime or in those overtimes, that the it, at least it occurred to me in my own brain that. The first two minutes or the last two minutes of each, each period were the most important and most likely uh, it was somebody who's going to score in that time. Now, it, was, it has been statistically proven through analytics that it's actually the first three minutes or the last three minutes. And here's my reasoning for that. It's simply because when you start back up after an intermission, you're not quite there mentally. And also in the last three minutes, you're also losing that concentration again thinking that the period's about to end. So uh, I, th- I think more than anything, my memory of that game would have been having some discussions with Andy Van Helman. He was the official that night. And remember, there's only one, one referee, two linesmen back in those days. And so you would have plenty of conversations. If there was a whistle in my own end, uh, we would, as the w- game went on, we'd often look up the score clock and it would flash something like, this is now the eighth longest game in NHL history, or this is, I think at one point it finishes the fourth or fifth longest game in NHL history to, to this day, it still stands as the longest game seven ever, yeah. but we just, we just had small little conversations like this is cool. This is weird. Or this is interesting that we, you and I, Andy are in this game and in this situation. So it, it became, I have to say the longer the game went on guys, the less, nervous I think it made us feel because you're doing something very unusual you're going into uh it it ended at four minutes to two in the morning surely if you give up a goal at uh, some point in the second third or fourth overtime you're not going to be blamed for the game or the outcome so that's how I looked at it It was like you know this is just a cool experience and uh, it, it kind of put me on the hockey map because uh, the year before I had been invited to play for Team Canada in the World Championships in Moscow. And that was an amazing experience. But because of the Easter epic, I was invited now to try out for Team Canada uh, for the Canada Cup that uh, fall. And everything sort of followed after that. Hey, I've always wanted to ask this because I remember going into Landover, Maryland once and it was a strange barn. The thing that yeah. I, the thing that I remember was that if the puck left the playing surface, 
Yep. It was a it was a problem for fans. Yep. And, and I remember talking to a yep. few people there, and they said that they they had believed that more people got hit in that arena because they lost sight of the puck. And I always wondered in that particular game if you're worried about the darkness of the arena and whether or not that might come into play. 100%. And that's a great memory, Bryn, because you're so right. And I remember the walls were painted black, and it was really difficult. And you're right. Once the puck left the playing surface, and certain high shots would give you problems in that building. And uh, it was also an interesting building that I had that particular game in that building because I didn't like the building, really. And for me, I can't speak for most guys, but I usually played my best in buildings that I really liked. And, and that one was not a building that I enjoyed playing in. And yet I had some really decent games uh, in that building. But, you know, I could go to places like uh, uh, Vancouver in particular. I loved the Pacific Coliseum. And then I enjoyed, uh, I think it was GM Place when it first came in. And uh, certain buildings, certain cities got the best out of me. And uh, Washington, that I just never had great memories of that building yet. I played well there. It was the weirdest thing. But you grew up in Elmwood, so what about the building yep. not that far from where you grew up, the uh, the old Coliseum? Did you did you love playing here or did you hate it? Yeah, that was uh, uh, both. Um, <laughs> one of the things I really enjoyed coming home to play, and my family would always be there and some friends and stuff, but it was nerve-wracking because it, it was odd. When you grow up and your mom and dad and your brother and your family – they're in the arena. It's it's comfort, right? It feels really great that they're there and giving you that uh, support. And all of a sudden, you become a pro, and then you're you're scared when they're there because you don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to you don't want to come back to Edmonton and the Oilers when I first played with the Islanders. They're the uh, the top of the league, um, and and so you didn't want to go there, and you didn't want to give up five in the first period, and all of a sudden sitting on the end of the bench. So that fear in a certain way did motivate you because I, I, I definitely played plenty of really good games in that, uh, in that, in the Coliseum and uh, great memories for sure. I had some bad ones too, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That, that tended to happen to visiting goaltenders for sure. Hey, talk about, I look back Kelly, because it's the last time, uh, a uh, Canadian team won the Stanley Cup for crying out loud. Yeah. 1993, um, Kings, Canadians, uh, three overtime games in that final series. Yeah. Uh, you played 20 games in that playoff year, I believe. Um, I tell you what, you don't get the Stanley Cup ring for the career, but you get the you get to the final. Is that now that you can look back on it, yeah. any kind of consolation. Some guys never even get to play for yeah. a Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I was the uh, I was also on the Islanders team that lost Edmonton the yep. first uh, cup for Edmonton, but I was the third goalie, so it didn't have the same impact on me uh, emotionally. But uh, I've never really ever gotten over it, guys. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it, I suppose you should look at it and say that's that's a great accomplishment getting the Stanley Cup final and being so clo- close but that's maybe what uh is the hard part about it you're that close and, and you you never uh never won so that that's hard i mean it it's a weird feeling because uh, you know if you lose in the first round that should be harder right because that's you know other than not making a playoffs that's complete failure and yet I can get over some of those first round losses a lot easier than uh, losing in the finals. That feeling just never goes away. I remember Ryan Smith saying the 2006 thing was a real kick in the kick yeah. in the rear end. It was a real tough thing to get over. Hey, uh, yeah. uh, other than the Easter epic, and before we start moving on to some of the major topics going on now, is there mm-hmm. one particular game that just stands out for you other than that one? Yeah, maybe... Uh, Maybe game five in that same year that we went to the finals, uh, 93 playoffs in the second round versus uh, Vancouver. I thought Vancouver was a fantastic team. And uh, and I wasn't surprised the next year when they went to the cup finals uh, against the Rangers. But we played a really fast series against them. They were loaded with talent. We were loaded with talent. 
but we lost at home badly in game four. We had a two, one series lead. And then in, in at home in game four, we lost seven, two. And I was in that. I played the entire game and it was really tough emotionally to get over that game and play two nights later uh, in Vancouver. And that game also went to a double overtime and Gary Shuchuk scored. Uh, and we ended up beating them three, two going home. And then we played fantastic. And Kurt McLean, I believe faced 50 shots in game six, but uh, we won five, two, five, three, something like that. And, and that was a, a big, big game because the Kings had never gone past the second round. Now we're going to uh, play the Leafs in the conference final, which by the way, had other memorable moments uh, also, but I think that just game five in uh, the second round because it, it propelled us into getting to the conference final, in my opinion, then ultimately going to play Montreal for the Stanley Cup finals. To quickly talk about the Gretzky transaction, some people call it a trade, some people call it a sale. I like transaction is a good word for me. There you go. But in Edmonton, obviously it hurt, and Canada it hurt. It just seemed like the, you, know, you took Canada's guy away to the U.S., but I remember going down there to the playoff run when it was the Oilers and the Kings that first time. Yep. And you finally, as a Canadian, got a chance to see the impact Wayne was making on Los Angeles. And then yep. you talked to guys, broadcasters, and all the hockey guys about that impact. That trade was more than just a trade. It, it, just, it just seemed to bring a city that you wouldn't think would be electrified by hockey to life. It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. So Wayne was traded in August of 88 and the Kings traded for me in uh, February of 89. So I missed the first, what, four months or so of uh, uh, Wayne's playing with the Kings, but uh, it was uh, phenomenal. It, it was, it that is also one of my, my hockey highlights to watch that the growth of hockey in Southern California and in uh, other places now, because of Wayne uh, playing in California, then you had Anaheim and San Jose, then you had Dallas, and you look at uh, uh, the hockey programs that they have in Texas now, the programs they have in uh, Tennessee now, and all these uh, places where we never really thought the hockey would gain much of a, a, a stronghold, and it really has, and all because of Wayne. I believe, I could be mistaken here, but I, you know, I'll tell the story, and I won't be off by much. So when I went down to California, we had the Great Western Forum and we had a place called, and you guys would remember it, our practice rink, the Culver City Ice Rink yeah. in a place called City. And that was a really terrible rink, you guys remember. But that was uh, often where we practiced. And also San Diego had a rink because San Diego has quite a long hockey history. And if, if I'm not mistaken, those were the only three hockey arenas in Southern California at the time. I was doing a project Jeepers five or seven years ago, and I, I had to study how many rinks there were in Southern California. I think I came up with something like there's 50-some different arenas now and many with multiple ice sheets. So it tells you the growth of hockey simply because of uh, Wayne going to uh, California. And uh, so his impact, uh, I don't think you can ever put it into words properly. Well, yeah, and we've seen how it's happened. I mean, you know, now the whole hockey world, uh, jump into today, Kelly, you talked about buildings you liked. Uh, you know, we talked, mentioned the growth of, of hockey in California and some of the Sunbelt cities because of Gretz. Yep. Now we're a year into something that is new to all of us. I mean, we're all the roughly the same age. Yep. And here we are with no fans in the buildings or next to no fans, at least in Canada, uh, a pandemic that's now over a year. It seems like everything has changed. Teams are yeah. playing in empty buildings. Interviews are done by zoom. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what's it, what's it been like for you? You played the game for the longest time. Uh, this is so different on so many levels for everybody. It sure is. I, uh, I was just thinking that a few days ago, how my life uh, in terms of a broadcaster has just completely changed completely. Like, as you guys know, I would, uh, I was an awfully busy guy doing flames games and uh, doing hockey night in Canada every Saturday and uh, always going to Toronto 
for the duration of the playoffs, uh, unless we were traveling for the finals. Uh, so, you know, I'd spend, I don't know, 200 and every year is a little bit different, but 200 and say 20 to 250 nights in a hotel room during the hockey season. Uh, some years about 180 on a, on a light year, which is crazy. And, uh, it, you know, I'd check into uh, the hotel in Toronto for the start of the playoffs. And I remember, and I made fun of this on Twitter one time and, uh, they see recognize me coming up to the front desk and they go, welcome back, Mr. Rudy. And the, she looks down at her computer. I see, I see you're here for, and then there's a pause. And then she goes, 64 nights. <laughs> I go, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm broadcasting. Uh, if the flames are uh, like tonight, they're at home. So I'll go to Scotia, uh, Banks uh, Saddle Dome and do it from the broadcast booth. But if they're on the road, I'll do it from a monitor from uh, the booth. And uh, Saturday nights, I do it from my office in my house. So the travel doesn't exist anymore. I've only been on a plane twice. And that was uh, for the last 18 days of the Stanley Cup playoffs when the teams were in the bubble. And I, I have to tell you guys, I didn't like it. I flew to Toronto. I didn't like it. I didn't feel safe. I flew home after the Stanley Cup was handed out, and I didn't like it. And uh, in fact, I had dealing. I know we're going to talk about mental health, but I had been dealing with some things prior to that. But the uh, pandemic and the second wave scared the pants off me, and I, I was not doing well mentally. I can tell you that. I think I know the answer to this question already. Because you're having to broadcast those away games in the bubble, or you're doing it right at yeah. the Saddle Dome. Is it tougher for you or is it tougher for Rick? I, I got to think it's a little tougher to do the play-by-play than the color, other than maybe have the odd button pop, uh, the, yeah, but- <laughs> uh, which was fun, by the way. I, I loved yeah. it. But but it's uh, got to be tough on the play-by-play guys. They get a lot of flack for that if they're missing on, on names and stuff. Pretty tough when you're doing it off a monitor. Yeah, I don't think it's – I've never asked uh, – well, Rick and I haven't had the conversation – I know that I think both of us, uh, or all of us around the league that are doing it, find it difficult calling it off a monitor. And, and uh, you know, some of the times we know exactly what replays we're going to see. Sometimes we don't, and we don't know the order in which we're going to see replays sometimes. Uh, so I would just say it's, uh, it's really difficult. Uh, I, I was kind of lucky in the sense that I experienced it before. We've had, uh, when I was at CBC, exclusively with Hockey Night in Canada. And most people don't remember this because I, I didn't do it a ton, but I have done color before until I, I signed on fully with Sportsnet in 2014. I think I did color about 30 or 40 times in my life. Um, most people recognize me more as a studio analyst, but I recall there are a couple of work stoppages uh, at CBC. So we had been calling games off a monitor and so I had that. And plus, uh, when you do Olympic Games, uh, oftentimes people, again, don't know this, but you call a lot of games off a monitor, uh, even if you're in the building, because it's, it's a really unique experience. Trust me, there's, uh, when you're getting replays from the IOC and you have no communication with the production truck, you have no idea what replays are coming. And you just have to expect that you're going to get what you think might have been the most important play that you just watched in the last three or four minutes of game time. So all of it's weird. Kelly, um, what do you make of the situation (laughs) now? Um, Bryn and I have batted this around uh, with the Vancouver Canucks. It's very, it's serious with them. We don't know what's going to happen yet. Um, There's all kinds of ways to approach it. We're already in a 56 game season. Um, maybe we're going to have to go to a uh, points percentage if everybody can't yeah. their yeah. schedules. Your your take on the situation now, because it seems to have turned a little bit in the last week or 10 days. I don't know. I, I can't really make much sense of it. I, I'm, I really feel badly for the players and the, the staff and their family members that are affected. Now we hear different reports, right? We hear that, uh, it's, it's really, really serious for some of the people that, that have uh, COVID 
and the new variant. And uh, it is, it's, it, it's very scary. Um, I don't know how you, uh, Robin Bryn are dealing with it personally, but it really scares me. I, I, I don't like leaving the house and I don't leave the house very often. And to me, it affects me. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out in terms of the national hockey league. I'm really, really fearful that now that, uh, the Canucks have been affected that I think it seems likely to me that, uh, the other six Canadian teams in some way will be affected. Um, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. They, they won't be, but these new variants are, highly contagious and it just seems to me like we're going to be in trouble here moving down the road. Kelly, you touched on this earlier and I communicated with you as we were getting ready to do uh, this podcast. You, you mentioned mental health and I know that you've long been an advocate for yeah. mental health, but uh, it starts really close to home for you. You've talked about having some issues back in the early 90s. Yep. Then it strikes even closer to home uh, when your young daughter, I think Caitlin was 11 or 12 at the time, right. was experiencing some issues. And that clip on Twitter really grabbed me because it's not the kind of thing you can really talk about in a post-game situation. Hey, Kelly, you won or you lost. How's the mental health? It's not, it doesn't lend itself to the yeah. relationship we'd have as reporter player. Talk about it now. Talk about this journey, where it started for you and where and and where you're at now. Yeah, so you're right. I, I did talk about it in the uh, early 90s. It was in the summer of 1992. And I believe I was going into my 10th year in the National Hockey League. And uh, all of us know the numbers, right? The average career lasts about three, three and a half years. Uh, and, and that was on my mind that summer. I was training. I was back home in Edmonton. And uh, the thoughts really gained momentum in August, I think. And it was like, you can't keep doing this. You're, you're your end in the national hockey league is near and all these negative thoughts. <clears throat> and I had no idea about the loop and Caitlin many years later in the summer of 2005 and, and beyond that started to teach me about uh, the loop and uh, trying to break it, the OCD thoughts and, and all that. And going back to 92, those thoughts gained a lot of momentum early in the season. And I called it an episode, uh, but it was, it was far more than that. I didn't know at the time that it was related to mental health issues, but clearly it was when I look back upon those days. And I was in a ditch for at least two months. I, I got off to a great start that year, as did my teammates. But early in December, I got off the rails, and uh, it wasn't until mid to late January and uh, I had fallen from being a pretty good goalie that year to the lousiest goalie by, by far in the National Hockey League. And luckily for me, uh, Barry Melrose was our coach and he recognized I needed some help. And so I think he went way out on a limb because nobody was talking about uh, team psychologists back then or sports psychologists back then. And, and he was able to get me some help. So he reached out to a friend of his, Tony Robbins. And uh, I was able to get the help with Tony, and uh, we really got at it. And I was able to get myself out of that ditch, and uh, we ended up going to the finals that year. But I had not experienced anything of any magnitude until the summer of 2019. <clears throat> and I'm not sure exactly what uh, I was going through. I, I have a pretty good idea. But I started to get a lot of these same sort of thoughts and uh, all negative thoughts and it was becoming really difficult uh, to go to work. And then I thought, you know what, I've got to, I've got to talk to my family about this. So I talked to my wife and I talked to my kids and uh, I said, here's what's going on. And uh, I'm going to go get some help. So I did in, uh, well, the playoffs ended in October or September of 2020. And I told you I was going through a really bad time in, in Toronto in the bubble. Uh, and like really tough. I, I was really close to going home before the Stanley Cup was awarded to Tampa. Um, I was struggling mightily. And so in November, I went to see somebody and uh, 
then when the NHL season started up again, prior to the first day, I've been, I went for 10 consecutive weeks every Friday to uh, talk about what I was going through and getting the help I needed. And it, it, uh, it changed my life again. I, I highly recommend it. In the two videos that I talk about this, uh, that I shared uh, just this year, I talk about what I was going through to a certain degree and that uh, don't do it alone. It's too painful to try and fight through it yourself. Uh, the help I got was uh, incredible and I feel much better about myself. Now, I did share my latest video, guys, that uh, I was going, I think, try and be brave enough not to go and I didn't on Friday. But that's not to suggest that I won't go back to seeing the person that has been helping me because I know that uh, I'm not in the clear. I know that uh, what I'm dealing with is just not going to go away and disappear and, and I'll never experience those thoughts again because that's just not how the brain works. That's not what I'm going through. So I know that I'll need to continue to get the help and I'm not afraid to share the story. And I'm, you know, I'm not ashamed. Uh, the, the heartwarming part about it, guys, is the feedback that I've received. It's just been incredible. And, and I wanted to make mention that it was, it's so heartwarming that I, I tried to reach out to every single person that contacted me. And I think it took me something like three days and I'm still getting people that send me the odd notice about uh, how it helped them in some way, or maybe a family member or, or uh, something along those lines. So I think I've said this for a number of years after Caitlin shared her story, uh, Robin and Bryn, that I'm really proud of my playing days. I'm really proud of my broadcasting career, but I'm most proud about the work that my family has done in the field of mental health. I know they're a little different, but there's a parallel here. I'm pretty sure. Just, just stick with me for a second. When yes. I was diagnosed with stomach cancer, there were two mm. ways of going, quietly deal with it or publicly deal with it. Mm. Well, I decided to go public and I went as yep. public as I possibly could. And it shocked a lot of people that, that I would throw yeah. myself out there like that. But I got more response from people who were going through that cancer thing, once again, and yeah. the Dale Howard Chuck connection and everything, and the Cross Cancer Institute people said, listen, we're getting some, we're getting some response back from what you're doing out there. You're helping people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I continued to do that. And for me, it was a bit of a circuit breaker for making sure that I didn't go to that deep, dark place that I've seen some people go to. So for you going public, was that a bit of a circuit breaker for you somewhat? I, I know it's tough because it's always a battle, but does, yeah. did that help going public? It did. I, I, it definitely did. Um, I don't want to minimize that. You know what gave me the strength? Just to see the reaction that Caitlin uh, received when she went public in 2013. Yeah. And it, her strength gave me the strength to share my story. So, hmm. It's tough. I, I, I got to say, uh, and I've never said this before, and it's not about me, um, but you getting the courage to talk to somebody. And I don't know if you want to talk more specifically, but when you had episode, you call it, a, you know, an episode. There was a time when I was going through the same thing, and I've never said it publicly. I guess yeah. that's out the window as of this podcast. Like it, Robin. There were times when, you know, I you spend four years in the minor leagues covering the Blazers with Hitch yep. and Scott Niedermeyer and all these young <clears throat> time goes by. I get to the Edmonton Journal and I jump on the Oilers beat with Jim Matheson. And I got, you know, you get established. There were times when I'd look around after deadline and I'd think. Who the hell are you trying to kid? You don't belong here. Yeah. You're, not, you're yeah. not good enough to be here. You're not even a very good writer. And you'd wrestle with that. And it would usually win until you finally went and whether it was a trusted friend or a professional and talked about it. Now, it's a, it's become a bit of a cliche, but there is nothing more important than talking about it to somebody, is there? Oh, that's that's the key. Like I said, don't do it alone because it's too painful. And the thoughts will, uh, I think, eventually get the best of you. And and uh, it's just way too difficult. But for me, I yeah, same sort of thing. I was really hard on myself, really critical of myself. I was finding not very much joy at the end of a night 
broadcasting and uh, I would be way too critical. Like I was looking for perfection and, and that's, that's an impossible thing to chase. Right. And so uh, I've learned to now enjoy it again and, uh, you know, not be so critical. In fact, I'm actually in a good place now. I, I record all my broadcasts and I'm able to watch them again and, and enjoy them and not be critical of myself and, and think, oh my gosh, you're the lousiest broadcaster. You'll never last. And all those same thoughts that I was having and, you know, just making life miserable for myself. And, and now I'm back to a place where I'm, I'm actually looking forward to every broadcast and I'm excited about uh, Saturday nights again and hockey night and uh, the ability to go on there. And uh, I leave uh, a broadcast on a Saturday night uh, really charged up again and enthusiastic about what just happened. And so it, my talking about it has been amazing and, and I really recommend it for people because <clears throat> it, it, it had taken me from a really lousy place mentally to a place that I'm really comfortable in and happy again. Thanks for sharing all that stuff. Appreciate it. Yeah, hey, just, just before we let you roll here, <laughs> watching the flames from a little bit of distance, I'm not sure if they're buyers or sellers. I can't quite figure out what's the problem there. Something isn't clicking. Can, now you see them every day. Can you figure it out? It's it's really weird to me. I yeah, it's really weird to me, and I'm not dodging the question simply because yeah, <clears throat> I'm a color analyst. I can't figure it out. They're on paper. They're way too good to be in the position they're in, and. I, I can tell you it is frustrating to watch them on a nightly basis because you'll see it for, say, the first nine minutes of a period. <clears throat> It'll disappear for five minutes and maybe reappear for six minutes or whatever is left in the in the period. And and it's it's from game to game and period to period. And at times you'll go, I like this team. And other times I'll go, I can't figure them out. And this team's just not, you know, I would think they have to be sellers because at this point you – there must, uh, I can't speak for the organization, but there must be some frustration watching that team play night after night and not getting the results that they should be getting. Kelly, w one last thing for me. Um, and even though I would make fun of you or poke fun at you on Twitter about it, one thing I've missed during this pandemic is you always taking pictures of your food on the road? Oh, right. I know. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, my gosh. That was something I really enjoyed. I took uh, a lot of uh, pride, you know, on a Friday night, in particular in Toronto. I do it from other cities, but I, I would, because I had oftentimes dinner by myself on a Friday night and uh, on the road. Otherwise, like if I was in Dallas or some, usually at a brick ball or Derek Wills or somebody like that join me for dinner. But Friday nights, I looked forward to it. I, I would actually send out tweets every once in a while and say to the people that follow me, hey, I'm in Toronto tonight. Where should I go for dinner? And oftentimes I'd take their advice. And I got some great ideas, right? They'd send me some really cool restaurants and I'd take pictures of my food. And usually there might be a glass of beer in there or a glass of wine. And and uh, I get a lot of really cool, positive feedback. So I, I liked it. Yeah, you're right. I miss those nights, Robin. Hey, listen, thanks for your time. This is long overdue for us. We were thinking of doing this, and then I got sick. And then we were thinking of doing it again with you and trying to get you on. And, we, you know, your schedule is tough as well. Ours is, it's, it's, uh, it's been long overdue, but it's been great. And thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Brennan. Robin, uh, I really uh, uh, like uh, having a chance to chat with you guys. I've always highly respected you guys. I think you guys know, have known that for many, many years. And so for us to get caught up like this, it's been uh, really great. I appreciate I, it. I just Thank wish you. I'd known that when you were wearing your bandana and I might've come after a post-game <laughs> interview. <laughs> Kelly, thanks. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Okay. Take care guys. Well, there you go. Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada. I thought he had some great topics that he touched on today. The mental health one is so important to him. So a big thank you to uh, to Kelly for joining us on the on the podcast today. That was great. Didn't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, Kelly's been a longtime advocate, you know, for mental health, but uh, it's because it's played a part in his life. And um, he just talked about it on Twitter again the other day. When it's there right, right in front of you and you're living it, the message really resonates with a lot of people. And, you know, what Kelly said, talk to somebody. I mean, that's a common thought now, but for the longest time, it's, well, gee, stop being silly. Just pull up your bootstraps and blah, blah, blah. The old way of thinking. No, if you got something weighing you down, weighing a loved one down, talk to somebody, whether it's a friend, uh, a family member, a professional, do whatever it takes. You don't have to struggle through it alone. And we're from a generation, Bryn, let's face it, and Kelly too, of men where strong and silent was the way to go uh, and you just put your head down and 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 get through it. Well, it's not always that easy and there's help out there on many levels. So yeah, it was fantastic. I'm glad he was willing to talk with us about that. Now, granted, not everybody can to- talk to Tony Robbins. He just kind of tossed that aside there. I'm thinking, well, well, you know what? If you're looking for a little help, looking for somebody for a little positivity, Tony Robbins is pretty good. <laughs> I know. I know. Wow. Hey, uh, little basketball action coming up tonight. And I don't say this very often, but I'm actually, look, I started watching cable TV in Edmonton back in the 70s, and it was Spokane. So I, I'm very familiar with where Gonzaga University is because Spokane, Washington is where we got all of our US TV from. So they are now playing their second NCAA men's championship final tonight against the number three team, Baylor. Gonzaga ranked number one. They just about got taken down, however, by the Cinderella team, the UCLA Bruins, but it went right down to the final seconds. Dusang, again with the ball in his hands, in the paint, floater, short, got it back, ties it with three. Gonzaga has time to do something. Sucks for the win. Thirty-one and zero going into the championship. Uh, Jalen Suggs, what a winner! It was a great, great ball game. So uh, we'll see how that one shakes down. Hey, one more thing to touch on quickly, and that is that sports is back big time in the U.S. The Toronto Blue Jays. This is an interesting story for me. They're, they're going to be playing in front of a crowd today. This is during the pandemic in the U.S. The Texas Rangers are planning on a full capacity, more than forty thousand fans for their home opener against the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, I don't know if that scares the living shit out of me or whether or not they are starting to turn the corner in the U.S. because their vaccination rate has been so high and we're lagging behind them. What's your thought about that? Well, I tell you what, I I hope it's the latter because I think everybody out there uh, can certainly agree. Uh, if we can, you know, if we can do it properly and keep everybody safe and get everybody vaccinated, um let's get back to the days when the stands were full i mean that's part of the whole experience bryn you and i have been attached to that experience for decades whether it's in a little western hockey league arena uh the national hockey league uh super bowls gray cups sports is as much about the fan experience as it is about the games on the field and while, you know, results are still there when you're playing in empty arenas and empty stadiums, man, isn't it nice, won't it be nice to look out and see people there yelling and screaming, going for the hot dogs, going for the popcorn. I hope we can all get there in a safe manner soon because, man, it feels like forever since we've been there. The Outsiders is powered by the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. Thank you to them. As I mentioned off the top of the show Things are looking pretty good right now. The numbers are in for the start of this year, and some people are struggling, not in the realty area. The numbers are in after the first three months of 2021. Residential sales in Edmonton are up. Here's where it breaks down. Single-family home sales are up by 80%. Condominium sales are up by 43%. And the country residential sales are up by a whopping, staggering 120%, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that during COVID, people still want to have that residence, but they want to be 
want to give themselves a little bit of a bigger bubble. So I'm not surprised to hear that, but this isn't going to last forever. So I would uh, suggest you get a hold of Brent or any of his team members at the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. Here's the phone number, 780-464-0075, or you can also find them online at macintoshgroup.ca. Email. Don't forget, you can email us. We love the feedback. Our email address is theoutsiders at shaw.ca. I've had four emails responses come through YouTube this week. And not only can you, of course, you know, by following or subscribing, tracking down our RSS feed, uh, obviously we're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast, but we do have to point out, yes, we are back on YouTube. And yes, you can reach us through YouTube and we love all the feedback. It's great. I love it. Oh, absolutely. Even if they're calling us idiots. No, nobody has done that. <laughs> absolutely nobody has done that. I just, uh, I, I, if there's one thing I've enjoyed, and having done sports talk and news talk radio for a lot of years, Robin, anybody can just phone up and tell you you're an idiot or you're, you know, you're full of shit or whatever. It, this doesn't happen because the people who are downloading our podcast want to listen. They're not listening yep. to be negative. They're listening because they want to get our thoughts on things. And we love your thoughts when you get back to us as well. The other thing, your support is greatly appreciated. And we'd be thrilled to talk to any potential advertisers. Don't hesitate to get a hold of us once again at that uh, email address or through YouTube, wherever. And uh, with your assistance, we can get bigger and better. And uh, looking very, very much forward to that. That's about it for today. That was a that was a hell of a show. Kelly's going to definitely be on the best of show. That was fantastic today. Did you not think? Outstanding. No complaints whatsoever. Great. Talk to you next week. Enjoy, will you? I certainly will, pal. Talk to you then. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs>